The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Coming up is part two of occupational therapist, Dr. Mary Warren, talking about how vision is affected in people with brain injury and how it might be ameliorated and how compensatory strategies can be used to help folks with low vision. I wanted to remind everybody that if you want to support Noggins and Neurons, there is a scannable QR code in the show notes on Podbean. You can also use Venmo. Our Venmo account is at Neurons. 20% of everything we get goes to the Brain Injury Association of America. We've already made our first donation, thanks to you guys, and boy, did that feel good. I want to take this opportunity to review a few resources available on my blog. Some of these are for clinicians and some are for survivors, but almost all of them are for almost all of them. So first, how do you get there? Here's the easiest way. You get on Google. That's at google.com. And you type in Stronger After Stroke blog. The first hit will be the blog. Let me give you an example of what's on the blog. If you're a clinician, here's something I bet you can use. On the blog, if you scroll down just a little bit, there's what looks like a flash drive and it says seminar stuff on it. And if you click through the links, there's all kinds of stuff. There's research on how many repetitions might drive cortical change. There's information on how to do speed dependent treadmill training and lower extremity constraint induced therapy. And that comes straight out of our lab. I wrote it. There's information on how to do electrical stimulation. Here's an example of a resource on there. There's a link to videos for electrode placement for every single muscle in the body. There's a whole bunch of research resources, how to do rhythmic bilateral training. There's just a ton of stuff in there. Let me give you an example of stuff for survivors. On the right-hand column of every page of the blog, there's a bunch of orange tabs that you can click that will bring you very good luck. There's mental practice recordings if you want to do mental practice, a stroke recovery guide by the Toronto Stroke Network, a search engine that will tell you about drug warnings. Are any of your meds going to cause you harm? How to deal with finances after stroke from the American Stroke Association, a complete list of stroke symptoms, recovery products that include reviews and prices, how to locate an aggressive physiatrist and neurologist, how to find a stroke support group in your area, 
And there's games that you can play to deal with vision problems, including the ones that we're talking about with Mary Warren. And one of the games is one of the ones that Dr. Warren suggested. And by the way, survivors, all the stuff that I mentioned before for clinicians, that stuff works for you too. So have a look around and I'll bet you're going to find something there for you. Okay. Now on to Mary Warren, vision and brain injury, part two. So sometimes when we're working with someone who needs extra time, we might think it's because of a motor problem. We might think it's because of fatigue and maybe even memory, but it could be because they're not uh, visually taking in their environment properly. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's why it's important to screen, right? Because if I have that client um, and I'm foreseeing them and I screen for their acuity and I screen for their contrast and I look at whether they can move their eyes together and I look at their visual attention, attention, if I do that basic screening, and get a sense of what are their strengths in using the visual system, what are their weaknesses, then I can further assess their performance in an ADL or something else and I can help start to distinguish, you know, is this vision or is this something else? If it's a vision, one of the ways I can test it is just by making whatever they're doing more visible to them. I can add task lamp to, to spotlight it, I can simplify it, I can get rid of all the pattern that's around it, whatever I need to do. I can create it and make it more visible and then watch how their behavior changes. Is there stuff that people that have visual field cuts and visual deficits generally can do around their house to make things more vibrant so they don't have to work so hard? Were any easy tricks for that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. First, there are kind of three steps that you do. What puts visual stress in our lives in, from our environment is too much pattern, the wrong type of lighting, and not enough contrast. So first thing is to eliminate pattern, and pattern can be pattern that's inlaid, like a pattern, floral pattern on a bedspread. The minute you put something on there, it disappears because it camouflages things. To clutter is another great source of pattern. So in your environment, you you work with them to create an aesthetic environment where they're they're it's in their environment is what they're using. Get rid of all the distracting, um, put the stuff away that you don't use. Get rid of distracting pattern which could be pictures on the wall or anything else, a fancy bedspread, anything. You just go for plainness on that because it makes more visible environment. Then improve the lighting. Most people do not have sufficient lighting in their own homes and they have the wrong kind of lighting and compact fluorescent lighting sucks. It's the worst ever for people with vision impairment. So we need to get rid of that. And we need to go with LED and brighter sources of lighting that are crisper and clearer and make sure that you have good task lighting and you have good ambient lighting in your room so that you can see things. And then add contrast to the things that you really need to find in your environment. So I'll give you an example of a client that I worked with just before I retired. She always lost her smartphone and it frustrated the heck out of her and we were talking I said what you know the problem with your smartphone is that it's just in a kind of brown case and probably when you set it down it just kind of disappears into whatever's there you need something that stands out more she's thought about that and then she went to a dollar store after therapy and she brought her bought herself a fluorescent cover for her smartphone and she came back the next week and said I haven't lost 
lasted since because I know what to look for and it stands out. So I believe very strongly that people improve following brain injury when they can successfully engage in their occupations again. Participation in a meaningful occupation and being able to resume those things help the person avoid depression, keep them engaged and keep them moving. And that kind of successful interaction with the environment is what stimulates neuroplasticity. So the biggest challenge that we have is keeping that, getting that client to engage. Well, we've got them in inpatient, they're engaged. But when we get them home, that's when things can really become problematic. The person um, suddenly doesn't have our support, pushing them on to do things. They're maybe in an environment that visually is very difficult for them to adapt to. They don't want to go out because the community environment scares them. So they narrow, they start dropping out occupations, they narrow what they do, and then surprise, surprise, they get depressed. And then that starts you know, that that causes even less motivation and less willingness to do things. And we can nip that in the bud if we can get a good, perfect environment fit for them, if we can really concentrate on that. We can't do that by never seeing them in their home. We need to assess their home and help them with that and really emphasize the importance of getting that good person environment fit. When they're comfortable in the environment, they'll have, they'll use their vision better and they'll have less fatigue and they will will continue to engage in their occupation. That's true whether they have a field deficit or oculomotor impairment or um, neglect or an acuity loss. It's just important to get that good fit. Well, you said something very interesting when you were talking about looking at their feet while they're walking. Mm -hmm. And I never in my entire career thought that that had anything to do with a a vision deficit. (laughs) I always assumed there might be some neuropathy there. And so I learned something tonight. Thank you. You're welcome because they look at their feet. They look at their feet particularly when they transition. So like if you're going to ask them to go through a doorway or something, they'll they'll look right down at their feet to try to figure where they're going. So looking at the feet is a big sign, you know, that a person may have a, a vision impairment. And you're right. We tend to think of it as being related to postural control or some other reason why they look at their feet. And persons with double vision also assume, you know, head positions that we think may be trunk or neck related that are actually, they're using them in order to get a single vision. One is, perfect one is a bilateral fourth cranial nerve lesion. So we have three cranial nerves that control eye movements and the fourth cranial nerve controls your ability to move your eyes down and out. It's a very thinly myelinated little cranial nerve that has a torturous path up to the eyes. And so it can be damaged bilaterally, even in a mild brain injury, even just a hard fall on the on the buttocks can damage this nerve. A person who has a bilateral fourth cranial nerve lesion will always have their head down because when their head is down, their eyes are up and they can avoid the double vision. When we see a client with their head down in therapy, our first thing is we've got to get that head up. They've got to be looking at us. But if you do that to a client who has a, has a double vision from a cranial nerve lesion, they'll shut their eyes when you force them to move their head up because they're getting double vision or they'll shut one eye or they'll start to squint. So there are a lot of behaviors that are visually related that 
look like they have something to do with the motor system. And again, because vision subserves motor, subserves cognition, we see those things. Mm-hmm. So I would love to talk some more about double vision, but I also want to make sure that we talk about the role of cognition and vision, because I think a lot of us don't really understand how um, deeply intertwined they are. They become intertwined. Vision is intertwined with cognition because vision is the primary sensory system that we use to identify objects in our environment and to assess context and realize the context that we're in and make decisions about what we're going to do next. So vision is our most far-reaching sensory system. It takes us farther and faster into our environment than any of our other senses. It's our only truly integrative sense in the in the um, in the sense that if I look at a bottle of water, I can look at a bottle of water sitting in my refrigerator, and without ever touching it, I know all of its physical properties. I know that when I do touch it, it's going to feel smooth, it's going to feel cold, it's going to feel round. If I pick it up because it's water, it's going to be heavy. So without even you know just by looking at it, I know all those things about it, and only the visual system. Can can give you that much information. Well, cognition is recognizing objects and using them appropriately and making appropriate decisions. If you're not getting good visual information or you're getting distorted visual information or not enough visual information, you often can't unlock the context. You can't figure out what the setting is that you're in and make your decisions based on that. And so we always see a change in cognition and you usually a kind of a shutting down of the person. They stop being a decision maker. They allow other people to direct them and to do things for them. And they become very passive in their decision making. They don't trust that they're going to make the right decision. And that plays into it as well. And they're very slow when they do things. So if I have a client who's had a brain injury and they're slow and they're passive and they're waiting for me to get them to do something, I'm going to think, well, that's from a lobe injury. That's initiation. But it's not. It's it's vision. It's holding back because you just don't have enough information to, to help you quickly decide and to do things. So sometimes when we're working with someone who needs extra time, we might think it's because of a motor problem. We might think it's because of fatigue and maybe even memory, but it could be because they're not uh, visually taking in their environment properly. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's why it's important to screen, right? Because if I have that client um, and I'm foreseeing them and I screen for their acuity and I screen for their contrast and I look at whether they can move their eyes together and I look at their visual attention, attention, if I do that basic screening and get a sense of what are their strengths in using the visual system, what are their weaknesses, then I can further assess their performance in an ADL or something else and I can help start to distinguish, you know, is this vision or is this something else? If it's a vision, one of the ways I can test it is just by making whatever they're doing more visible to them. I can add task lamp to to spotlight it. I can simplify it. I can get rid of all the pattern that's around it. Whatever I need to do, I can create it and make it more visible and then watch how their behavior changes. Is it, are, you know, are they attending better when it when the object is more visible? Are they able to use it longer? Are they using it more accurately? You know, are they sequencing better because they're getting 
the flow. I change the environment. I modify it and I see how the person responds. Or if I put um, occlusion on a client so that I eliminate the double image and the blurring that may occur when they have strabismus, when their eyes, cranial nerve lesion, they get strabismus, their eyes don't work well together and they get a lot of double vision from that. If we block off some of their vision so we they um, don't have the double vision any longer, does their attention improve? Do they start to participate more? Are they sequencing better? That's the kind of problem-solving early interventions that we need to be aware to do with a client. Matt Green, who is a graduate of, of a UAB program, did a very simple little study. It's just, it's beautiful. What he did is he took a task plan. He worked in um, a setting with clients with neglect. And um, it must have been an inpatient setting. I'm kind of grasping. I haven't thought, I haven't looked at his research for a while. But he did a little study where he put a task lamp um, in their ADL area when they were doing their grooming. So what the task lamp did is it spotlighted the grooming task. And what he found is that they initiated faster and they completed better. So just adding that little task lamp help them focus their attention. But I think one of the, the more charming aspects of his study is that he did it on an ABAB design. So you they have it and then the next day they don't have it and then the next day they get it back and then the next day they lose it again. So you see if it's really making a change. And so he did it the first day and gave this client the spotlight and she did her, her grooming task. And then the next day he she couldn't have it and she wanted it. She was like, where is it? I can't do this as well. I need that lamp. And he said, you'll get it back tomorrow. She had to go through the study to finish it. But just something as simple as that can make a difference in how a client responds to you. It's fascinating. It is. Don't you want to just make a career of it now? Yeah, this is the problem that I have as an OT. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. It's now a good time to talk about the the is it the bivaba or the bivaba? Yeah, yeah. Um, the bivaba is is short for brain injury visual assessment battery for adults. And when I first began addressing vision, the thing I didn't have was a good way to assess it. And so I put together a battery of just basic visual assessments that aligned with the visual perceptual hierarchy to allow me to look at the person's strengths and weaknesses in their vision. So it includes acuity tests that look at distance acuity and reading acuity and contrast sensitivity, quick screen for eye movements, uh, visual scanning subtests to look at neglect and those types of things. But I didn't want a diagnostic kit. I, I wasn't interested in that. What I was interested in doing was being able to say your strengths are here and your weaknesses are here. And so we got to figure out how to use your visual strengths to compensate for your weaknesses. So I didn't include cut scores, and I didn't include norms, and I didn't worry about that. We standardized parts of the assessment, but never made it so that it became an assessment said, you have it, you don't, you have it, you don't. It was just an extra tool to help the therapist understand vision, to look at it different ways and understand what the strengths and weaknesses were. So cueing is part 
part of it and changing things and repetition, letting them do it more than one time is all part of this type of assessment. It's not an assessment where you do every single thing. You know, you it just covers a wide range of visual issues a client may have. And you go in and you first observe them in their ADLs and think about what you may be seeing. And then you test your hypothesis. Boy, he looks like he doesn't see very well. You know, like his, his acuity is impaired. So, you know, I'm going to do the next test I'm going to do is that assessment. So it's kind of a different way of thinking or a different way that we are trying to use assessment. Been <laughs> criticized over the years because it can't be used in a research study. To it it'd be wrong to use it in a research study. It doesn't have cut scores. It isn't used for that. And so um, it's taken a while for people to understand it, but people who have who understand it use it a lot. It's used all over. Australia, Germany, Netherlands. It seems, yeah, yeah. It, it's from the little bit that you've mentioned and the information that I read that you sent to us. It seems like it's more um, beneficial to a practitioner in guiding us in how to help a person. Yes, the intent of it was for inter- to set you up so that you understood how to set a goal for this client, so you understood how to do your intervention. So the manual, which is what I've been updating for the past several months now, and you looked at that little piece of the updated manual, is to give the therapist a lot of background and understanding of how vision works and what we're going to assess and what we're going to look at. And the manual also talks about, okay, if you see this, then you want to refer to this doctor for that. You know, if this is what's coming up your screen. This is who needs to look at it next. This is what your intervention should look like. These are what your goals should look like. Because it's pointless to give therapists a lot of assessment and allow them to document a lot of things without actually teaching them how to use that information for actual intervention. Assessment is the first step of intervention. It's not a separate thing. And we tend, over the years in the clinic, have been taught that assessment is what we do to, to say, skilled therapy is needed. So we got to use every highfalutin term that we've got. And we have to sound really important when we're doing it because we're making the case to the insurance company that skilled intervention is needed. Skilled OT is is needed. But my point is that's, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. What we're supposed to be doing is linking, in this case, vision impairment to a limitation in occupation. That's what the insurance company actually wants us to do. And then setting a goal that addresses how that person's going to do the occupation despite this limitation in vision. And so we have to use our assessments in a, in a different way in order to get to the intervention piece of it. I've been banging that drum a long time. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm just going to keep banging it now while I can. Well, it is kind of a um, it's it's a problem that I've seen over the course of my career. I I know for a while cognition was a, a very important piece for us to assess, and people would assess it, but nobody would address right. an impairment, and then they still want to send this person home. So yeah. that that did not seem right to me. Um, yeah, there's a disconnect. Mm-hmm. And I think as you gain experience as a therapist, you start to realize, you start to see the disconnect and you start to pull things together. Um, 
And and that's the advantage of having a therapist with a lot of years of experience versus one who has no experience. But we can't, the stakes are too high. We can't wait for experience to teach you that you need to be using assessment, linking it to intervention in a, in a more direct way. So we need to start with our assessments doing that for the client. And so for the therapist, so they know right, right off the bat what they need to be doing. Carolyn Baum's group at Washington University did that with their executive functioning assessment. I probably didn't say that. Was right. it the executive function performance test? Yes, yeah. because they they used ADO activities and then looked at, at cognition in relationship to how a person was performing their ADL. So, but yeah. you know, design copy is a useful test for observation, but just using it as a test isn't going to get you there. Um, figure ground and perception isn't going to get you there because you don't know what to do with it if you haven't really looked at all of the client's strengths and weaknesses and using their vision. Hey everybody, I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important, recovery from brain injury. Since 2016, I've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury. I get together with them on Zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour, and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going, where they are in the process, what their ambitions are for their recovery, and what's holding them back. Often a caregiver is also in the meeting, and sometimes clinicians show up. Anyway, we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery. And then I take a few days, do the pertinent research, and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm gonna be putting a link on the show notes, but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's stronger after stroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, stronger after stroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple. Strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right. The um, Brain Injury Assessment Battery for Adults is available at visibilities.com. I'm going to do your advertisement for you. I'm I'm interested about one of the statements you have right up front where it says, thank you for visiting Visibilities to find quality in-depth continuing education on visual processing impairment from adult acquired brain injury. We will no longer be offering the part one and part two workshops on site. And I wonder if you're, you did that for the same reason that I stopped going on the road right around when COVID hit. Did that have anything to do with it? It did. Um, a couple of things did that. I, I taught a part one and part two course and I taught it all over and it was fun for 30 years to do that. But um, COVID stopped it. Okay. 
And that allowed me to kind of step back away from it. And I had, I still had the obligation to teach a part one and a part two course. And so we did it over Zoom. And I realized that I could use a Zoom platform to teach the course, but it was brutal to try to teach it as a live course because it's 12 hours long. So what I decided to do is I have this material I, I have these lectures, I've worked hard on them. I know how to tape in Zoom now. What I'm going to do is, is tape lectures and, and do a kind of on-demand platform with it. Tried it out with the Australians, an Australian group this summer, and it was great. I taped six hours of lectures for them. They um, took them <laughs> together. They sat at lunch and listened to a lecture I had quizzes for them because I've been a university professor. So we got to have that quizzing component. And then we had a live meeting where we followed up with questions and answers and everything could be recorded. Everything can be released Zoom did its job and it worked well. So what I'm planning with my, my son-in-law is helping me do this is just taking that hard work that I put into these lectures and breaking them down into uh, shorter lectures. It also, what really, really excited me is that I teach a lot in the United States, but I never have great access to an international audience, right? All right. So when I did it with the Aussies, we had the bulk of the lecture taped, and then we were able to find a time. <clears throat> Sorry, you know, the cut, cut, cut. No problem. It'll be edited right out. It'll be seamless. <laughs> okay. I can't wait to hear it. Um, then we were able to find a time, you know, that it was eight o'clock their time, and I think five o'clock my time in the afternoon, a time to do this this meeting. And if people couldn't attend, it was tape. I'm going to do it for the Canadians again in the spring, just because it's allowing me now suddenly to get to an audience that I always wanted to get this past the, the US and can do that kind of work. So I'm going off the road simply because it's harder to be on the road. And then I don't want to do it. You know, I'm not doing it during COVID. And I, it's more cost effective for departments as well to do it this way. So I'm going to try it. I wouldn't have tried it if I didn't have this great son-in-law who's going to help set up the web interface and all the stuff that I need to do it. Visibilities is a mom and pop organization. It is literally my husband and myself. I'm the talent. He does the work. He's 70 now. He doesn't want to do the work. So, my so you got to bring in some new blood. You got your son-in-law I got my, coming in. I got my son-in-law doing this now. So, awesome. One of the awesome. cool things about your, your website is it has a switch to low vision button, yes. which I mean, I don't have huge visual problems, but a lot of a lot of websites, it just doesn't resonate with whatever it is. And it's good to see somebody put a switch on there and it makes it a little bit easier to read. It does, but we're also going to redesign it to just give it a cleaner look. But the other thing, my son-in-law is going to help me do. So. Son-in-laws. I'm son looking forward to having one of those. Yeah. yeah, very useful people. They really are. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it would be okay if I read the statement that you sent. I know it's it's from the work that you're currently doing, but I absolutely love it. It really resonated with me as an occupational therapist. So I'll read it. If you don't want it in the podcast, we can take it out, but um, it's very powerful to me. You said, although it is important for clients to become independent in their daily occupations, participation is the ultimate goal of occupational therapy intervention. Following discharge, clients will reflect on their OT sessions 
and judge our success, not by whether they can complete an activity, but whether they participate in the activity on a regular basis. Through that, yes, true. Right. And I think I think we know that, again, I listen, and you probably do too, when, when a new story comes on and um, it's about rehab and they mention the OT, I'm all ears. I want to hear what they say. And invariably, if they give OT a good thumbs up, they help me so much, it's because they allow them to get back to something they really love to do. And... I'll always say, you know, people want to be normal again, normal vision again, because they want to participate in their occupations like they used to, right? It's not so much that they want to have normal vision. They just want to go back to the occupations they used to do and be able to enjoy them. So if we can give them that ability to participate again in those occupations, they can live a good life, whether or not their vision improves. And that's it's written all over our practice framework, and that's what we need to do as OTs. So. It sure is. And I feel like you did such a wonderful job of talking about all of this vision information in a way that is useful to practitioners, even those who continue to work within the medical model where things sometimes get turned upside down. Thank you. That was my intent. Yeah. Well done. Well, thank you. I mean, I've always been, I mean, I've been, a, I was a university professor for 17 years, but I was a clinician the entire, my entire career. And I've always considered myself a clinician first. And that's what we want in the clinic. We want a way to provide effective interventions to get our clients better. And so I've always been interested in how you share information in a way that allows somebody to immediately apply it to the clinic. We started the graduate certificate in low vision rehab at UAB for that intent. UAB is a research one university that is very forward thinking. And so Back before it was even fashionable, UAB was starting to offer what are called graduate certificates to persons who already had a post-professional degree. So an OT already has a master's degree. They come out. They don't need another master's degree, but they may want to specialize in something. So these universities, and now we see it all over the place, where you offer a targeted, you know, 15 credit hour experience in a single area. So I was recruited to UAB to do that. And we it's for it's a it's the graduate certificate in low vision rehab. It includes age related eye disease, but it also has a section on brain injury. I teach an entire three credit hour course on brain injury every spring to the people going through the program. But the intent of the program, because they already have their OT degree, is is not theory and, and other things. Theory is important, but it's not that kind of stuff. It's practice. It's Im immediately improving your practice and getting better. So as we honed our skills, and I say we because Beth Barstow built this program step-by-step -step with me and is still the program director of it now, um, we were, is this relevant to the clinic? Is this relevant to the clinic? Is this relevant to the clinic? Is this going to make a difference in clinic? And that's how we built the, the certificate. And you so do have to present information in a certain way for it to be relevant to the clinic. Yes. 
You do. I teach in an occupational therapy assistant program, and I'm wondering if there are um, any learning opportunities for occupational therapy assistants. I haven't heard of, of any. Part of the challenge that we run into, we do have, we have two OTAs who have gone through our graduate certificate program and, and have the certificate and did great in the program and are doing wonderful work with it. But both of them had to have a bachelor's degree because when you're situated in a university, yeah, an associate degree is not going to get you in to a graduate school and the university is that the graduate certificates are done through the, the graduate program and the university is, is giving you a degree in that. So it's a, it's a certificate degree, but it's a degree. So that's part of the challenge with that degree. Now, if, if OTAs go to a bachelor's entry level, then, you know, that problem is solved. But right now it's hard to, to have a mechanism where they can get formal education because of the fact that they don't have a bachelor's degree. Yeah, but they could take your your training. They can if they have a bachelor's degree. We can't admit oh. a program if they don't. It doesn't have to be an OT. I mean, it can be a bachelor's degree and whatever. I think our, our last OTA had a bachelor's degree in education. She was a teacher and had had enough of that and <laughs> got her OTA um, degree. But we had to have the bachelor's degree, and every university is going to run into is going to have the same challenge. It's can't get around it. But no, yeah, yeah. But what about the 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 continuing education that you've created? Oh, oh yes, and I think OTAs because they work in the home because they focus on ADL. They're very natural people for providing vision rehab. And working at it, and they're good problem solvers. Um, and every assessment that we teach is a standardized assessment, so we, there's no issue there either with how they do it. So I think they're they're a great profession to get additional um, credentialing in this area. Hey, um, I haven't figured out how to get any younger, so I wonder if you have some global insights for me as my vision wanes, other than the sort of salient stuff that you were talking about where you got to be in the community. And when you're driving, you're looking here and you're looking there and you're using it as an opportunity to challenge your vision. You know, is there, and then you mentioned, and this is something like my wife and I have have knocked down drag out fights about stuff I can't find. Like I can't find anything. And now I'm looking at my desk and there's no wonder I can't find anything. It's just pill bottles and I don't know, tape. And I don't even know what's there. So uh, patterns, uh, getting cutting down on clutter that might help me um, making light better. As you can see, I, I get migraines. So I sit in the dark a lot. That's a problem. And then high contrast stuff. But I wonder if there's anything else that, you know, just somebody who's going through normal aging eye changes can do to maybe get a little bit of it back or slow the decline maybe i'm not aware that you can get it back or slow to decline <laughs> it's um that's not good news it's a downhill i'm it's just a downhill <laughs> it just is. most oh, most adults by the time they're in their 70s are going to have cataract and you're not going to avoid it and if you could have avoided it that would have been back in your 20s and 30s it's an environmental exposure exposure thing that's too late for you now 
And <laughs> your chance of getting an eye disease really ramps up the older you, you get too. So it's it's not. It's and you're no, it's all it's all downhill. So it's it's adapting. You know, good lighting is a huge one because we do our lighting choices in our 70s. That's when we kind of get our preferences for lighting. And then aging research, one of the best statistics in research of just normal older adults aging is that a, um, an older adult needs, is it, let's see, the 10 times the amount of light that typical 20-year-old would need um, in order to see as well as a 20-year-old. And you need six times as much contrast to be able to see as well as a 20-year-old. I'm not sure I got those quite right. I'll have to point you towards Braben's article about that. But um, so we just need to change our environment and let us let it work with us. When we moved to Kansas and we renovated a house and we made it high, as high a contrast as we could with as good a lighting as we could because we want to go out feet first from, from this house. So aging is something you adapt to. It's it's going to win. So, But on the, on the plat, I'm looking for some sort of little light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> on the plasticity side, yeah. is there anything that we can do to challenge our the, the visual cortex to be more sensitive or be able to process stuff easier? Or is that so entwined with the inevitable loss of vision through all the disease processes that it's, yeah. it kind of washes out? Well, vision is going to decline. It will, it will just decline. But and the research is, has shown that. But visual attention does not have to decline. Your attentional capabilities we they, they often decline because we're just lazy and we don't put them to use. So you you know um, you adopt activities where you have to use your vision, and react to them. Any kind of sporting game like that with a ball is is good. Dynavisions are actually good for older adults. These light boards where you have to. Do do that kind of stuff, computer programs where you have to um, work on visual memory and those types of things. Those are very fluid. Those have been shown that you can improve your capabilities. In fact, there's reading or not reading, driving research where they um, worked on computerized programs that really worked on attention and working visual memory and, and saw an improvement in driving in older adults. So those types of things you can, that's the very plastic system that you can work on. So play video games and um my son will be happy to hear that. Activities with a lot of good, good detail in them and concentration and that kind of stuff. Wow. So I, I hear you saying, don't sit in your recliner and watch TV all day. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Especially news programs. Do not watch those all day long. They will just drag you down. So. Yes. Yeah. Wait, we just went into a whole different realm there. That was that was interesting. She was slick flipping that right in there. I do think it's interesting how, you know, so much of our life is now on the computer and then we got the yeah. cell phone and now it's brought our whole visual area into a yeah. smaller and smaller area. And um, I, I, I do a lot of CU talks as well. And I, I encourage therapists to encourage encourage their their patients on the PT side, we still call them patients, um, that when they're when they're in their car is an excellent opportunity to go mirror, mirror, mirror. You know, we spend so much time just right in front of us and that's it. And if it's a red light, all I got to worry about is the car in front of me. But no, what a great opportunity to look around and and see stuff. And that's 
just the normal engagement uh, in the environment, I think, probably helps a lot to keep the visual cortex going. Yeah, yeah. The mantra of aging is to stay active. So there's something to it. Well, I think um, one of the things, unless um, Deb has some pressing questions, um, we need to get all of your, like it's MedBridge and this, all the websites. Did we get a list of all the contact stuff? I don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of out there. I did do a MedBridge course. I always forget about that MedBridge course because I don't get paid for it. The UAB gets paid for it. So it's oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so that was nice of you. There. Yeah. But you're right. There's a MedBridge course and then there's visibilities. And that's kind of for what I teach basically it. I have a book chapter in the Pedretti textbook and a book chapter in another OT textbook that I can't think of right now. And um, and okay. the Bible, which I've been <laughs> updating forever, but I'm going to get it done. So and all of that's through visibilities. So visibilities is the main website for me. And um, UAB, actually, I'll, I'll give you the link to UAB because the UAB OT department has the self-report assessment of functional visual performance, which is a vision-dependent ADL assessment. It's been validated on persons with hemianopia, and that's free from UAB. And there might be a couple of other things there, too. So I have to think about that. But I can give you the MedBridge course. Yeah, so um, it just because in the show notes will be clickable links, so anybody okay. who listens to it might very well turn there, and then they can see what you're doing. Okay, well, I'll give you book chapters and... Um, UAB and visibilities website. I think it's something else. I'll give you that too. Deb, are we all out of questions? I doubt it. Um, so we can I keep have, going. But I have one more question that I would like to ask. If if it doesn't work for tonight, that's fine. But I'm curious to know about the role of the vestibular system in vision. <laughs> That's, I think it's kind of a big question. That'll be a three-hour answer yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah, it is a big question. Um, I'll, I'll take it down to a very small thing. Is that what the vestibular system gives us in terms of vision is gaze stability so that we can see clear images when our body, our head's in motion. So when the visual system tanks or when the vestibular system tanks, we have blurred vision and um, difficulty. We get smear and problems. We can't use our, we can't see well when, when we're in motion. And that's the primary issue with it. And the PTs have actually done a really good job in developing the research to support the evidence, to provide the evidence for using gaze stability exercises to improve that ability to see as you're moving um, for persons with peripheral vestibular impairment and also central vestibular impairment, but visual is hard, but peripheral is easier, um, more successful. And then this is another area where um, vision therapy that the optometrist, that the optometrists are doing is also useful. Like if we go back to Ken Kafrida's group at SUNY, one of the things that they just published and are looking at more is 
um, visual motion sensitivity, which is a vestibular visual issue that affects people with traumatic brain injury, where if they're in a car, everything is swimming around them. And when they're moving, things swim around them. And it's, it's, uh, it affects their postural control and other things. And they're looking at te- techniques that may improve that. And visual snow, where you get this bizarre party in your visual field. And that can happen following stroke and, and but more likely traumatic brain injury and sometimes even concussion can cause it. So maybe you want to have Ken on your podcast. Maybe we uh, will. Yeah, Ken Kafrida. He I've never met him in person, but he is probably the smartest man on the planet. So um Do you how do you spell his last name? It's it's C I U F F R E D A. I actually have his email address. If you email me, I'll give it to you. Okay. Um, but he, um, because his lab has produced most of this evidence, he, and he's been at this a long time. He's 74. So he's, you know, been around for a long time. He just kind of knows everything. Um, he's one of those people. And his research is in. Impeccable. I mean, he goes head to head with everybody and stuff. Um, so he might be a good contact for you. I don't know how he'd be on a podcast. I don't know if he'd want to do a podcast, but he is the guy. Well, we might find out. Division therapy, yeah. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. That's all I have. Hey, I got one more little technical thing. Um, I use the word hemianopsia, and you use the word... Hemianopia. Hemianopia. Either Toma- one. Tomato, tomato? It is. Okay. Um, hemianopsia, hemianopia, if you look in the research literature, is sort of taken over. So they drop the S, and it's hemianopia. And hemi- but hemianopsia was... Um, a couple of decades ago, the term. So on a search engine, if you're searching for research articles, you need to put in hemianopia and hemianopsia. Um, oh, and I, I see. started switching to hemianopia because the newer research uses that term. Um, I don't really even know how that got started. It's just a trend. Mm. We're dating ourselves. Yeah, I think she yeah. just called me old. Yeah. Well, That's I'm right. old. I'm old, so um, maybe I'm calling myself old, but yeah. Yeah, I can see how if you want all the research, you better get both terms in there. Yeah, you have to get everything yeah, in there or something will drop out. You won't get it. So. Well, this has been incredibly pleasant. And kind of fun. And fun yeah. and sort of painless. So that's that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you that's so great. much. I was really worried about doing this. So. Oh, no. <laughs> like, what am yeah. I going to say? But, so when we have people on in the future, how can we waylay their fears? What, what can we do to help them? I think just your genial conversation. <laughs> Ask dumb questions. <laughs> That's oh, the key. There are no dumb questions. Thank you. Dumb questions Thank really you. get you places, I think. So it's true. Oh, you're the second person who said that to us on <laughs> on the podcast. In fact, I think yeah. they're all just saying we have dumb questions, Deb. Yeah. Well, I, I started my mentor mentee relationship with Dr. Josephine Moore, which was the most important professional relationship in my entire career, was the time I worked with her, started with me asking her what was on the other side of the brain. She was lecturing and talking about the motor system. And um, I'm just like, what's on the other side? What does the other side of your brain do? It was such a 
stupid question. It stopped her cold. <laughs> she could not answer it because I don't think she could believe anybody would ask something. How were you? How were you conceptualizing it? Were you saying on the other side of the cortex, well, or yeah, yeah? Because she was talking about the speech centers and the mother centers, and I'm like, but she's missing the whole right hemisphere. It doesn't have speech. You know, and it oh, doesn't matter, but we're past that. So I'm like, she's on the left and I'm like, but what's on the other side? What's that other side do? And after that, I and I went up to her at the break and said, I'm sorry for doing that. She said, no, that's a good question. <laughs> and it just started a conversation that, that went on for years. So, Oh, wow. It's the first Love question it. to a conversation that went on for years. Yes, and it was a dumb question. Yeah, well, see. Yeah, somebody asked, that, asked me that today, I'd be like, what? What? Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Warren. We appreciate yeah. it. A lot of good information. And um, I hope we can keep in touch. Yeah, yeah. Just let me know. And if I, you can always catch me by email. That's a good memory prompt for me. So if I promise okay. something didn't deliver, just email me. Okay, great. Okay. All right. Thank, thank you so you. much. Go have some fun. Yeah, you too. Have a good weekend. Okay. All right. We'll leave. Bye. Bye. Another winning show. I know. They do all the work. We get all the credit. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.